So we're going to be working in two different texts today. And I'm essentially going to treat them as the same text. Um, it'll be clear enough that I'm allowed to do that. When we get there, I'll make a case that these two texts are talking about the same thing, trying to do the same thing, teaching us essentially the same thing. The first text is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and then we'll also begin in Hebrews 5. There's a lot here, but I'm going to go ahead and read all of these passages before we begin. So 1 Corinthians 2, beginning at the beginning. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And then flip over to Hebrews 5, begin in verse 11 of Hebrews 5. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So the first thing I want to do here is point out Paul's bold declaration of the simplicity and the sufficiency of gospel preaching. Remember in Romans 1.16, Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
We boldly profess that salvation is of the Lord. It rests solely upon God's mercy and grace. It depends not on any foreseen works of man. It only comes from God. But the salvation is no longer a mystery. It's no longer hidden from us how God has saved us. To the saints of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, there's some sense in which their salvation was hidden from them. They were the people of God. They were saved by God, but they did not understand how they were saved by God, except that they knew that he had promised to do so. This is because this salvation, Christ the Messiah, was not fully revealed to them. They were saved on account of the righteous and infallible promises fulfilled by the righteous and infallible Christ. But Christ was still a mystery to them, but he was a mystery that they had faith in. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that uh, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Christ is not a mystery to us. Christ is revealed in the testimony of the apostles. We can grasp the person of Christ through what is revealed in Scripture. God has not veiled the means and the instruments through which he has worked out the salvation of his people. And Paul tells us what that is here in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. This is the power of God that Paul talks about in Romans 1. The power of God for salvation is this gospel. Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his obedience, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. These things are not a mystery to us. And so Paul did not approach the saints in Corinth with lofty speech and wisdom. So what does that mean? Um, I can't really tell you what lofty speech would have been for Paul, though he may have engaged with some of it at Mars Hill. Remember in Acts, Paul engages the Greek philosophers there at the Areopagus. But I can tell you what lofty speech looks like for me and for us. In my preaching of Christ and Christ crucified, I don't have to tell you that it's really important for you to understand the deep philosophical underpinnings of vicarious satisfaction. I don't have to explain to you the ordo equitatis or the ordo salutis, and I don't have to explain the significant distinction between God's ad intra and ad extra attributes or how Christ relates qua humanis et qua divinitum. This is lofty speech, and you don't have to know what any of that is. Fun fact, only one of those things was made up by me. The rest of those were real. They have their place, but they are not essential, and in some cases they are not even helpful for you to understand, or to talk about, or to study. 
And one particularly pertinent application here concerns the error of demanding affirmation of not only the essence of gospel truth, but further demanding and understanding and apprehension of these things. The requirement that one must affirm some particular linguistic articulation of the doctrines of the gospel, the doctrines of grace, or other things. I've often seen well-meaning people demand a certain working theological vocabulary before recognizing a profession of faith as legitimate. And this is wickedness. If I question your profession simply on the grounds that you have omitted my preferred language, my preferred words, then I am an idolater of my own intellect. I am an idolater of my own linguistic creativity. Paul declares here in 1 Corinthians 2 a divinely appointed sufficiency of preaching only that Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on human flesh and obeyed his Father's law. And he went on to suffer the wrath of the Father for the sins of his people. And by the power of the Spirit, God, by the Spirit of God, God, Jesus was raised from the dead in glory. He ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father waiting the day when at the Father's command he will return to judge the nations. He will cast the devil and his angels and all the wicked into the lake of fire, and heaven and earth will be made new. And the people of God will enjoy eternal communion with their Savior, Christ. If you scoff at this profession because it does not contain the particular articulation of your pet doctrine, then you are an idolater. You bring shame upon the name of Christ because you uphold your own worldly wisdom. You worship your own creativity. Instead, Paul was with the Corinthians in fear and trembling. Humility, simplicity. His speech and his message were not articulate and enticing. If you're reading the ESV, it says plausible, but there's probably a better English word for what Paul's trying to say here. The idea is that his speech was not attractive and persuasive in a linguistic or academic sense. Paul's teaching would not have appealed to philosophers and academics. Whenever I read this, I think of our brother, uh, Pastor Jesse, because um, to me, Pastor Jesse emulates what Paul is demanding of teachers here. Um, You listen to Jesse, and don't get me wrong, the dude's not dumb. He knows his Bible better than any of us. Okay, but he doesn't sound like a seminary professor, does he? No, because Jesse relies on the sufficiency of the testimony of God. That is what we are supposed to be doing here. We're not relying on our own creativity, and we're not relying on our own persuasiveness We let the word of God do what the word of God is designed to do. Because in the word of God is the power of God for salvation. As Paul says here, 
he characterizes his teaching when he says, in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The teaching that Paul provides for us here is the power of God. It is Christ in Christ crucified. He declares the simple gospel truth to the people of Corinth. When it comes to evangelism, that's all we really need. Nothing you can add to the gospel will make it more effective. The gospel alone is maximally effective. Any sort of schemes or creativity that you can bring to it actually detracts from what you're trying to do. God has ordained the gospel alone for the salvation of his people. And when you add your preferential schemes to the gospel call, you run the risk of corrupting the gospel that you profess. Instead, let your gospel be simple and pure. And let your gospel glorify Christ and not yourself. Now, Paul goes on in Hebrews now. He says, about this we have much to say. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, I do not mean to use this text to rebuke any of you. I'm not calling you out for being big babies, for not being mature enough. Rather, I'm using these passages together to expose the reality of neglecting the study of the word and the assembly of the saints. So I think my mashup here works. Paul opens 1 Corinthians 2 discussing the sufficiency of a pure and simple gospel of Christ and Christ crucified. And then in Hebrews 5.11, he begins with about this. And so we need to go back a few verses to figure out what the about this is talking about. Back to verse 7 of Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, and to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Christ and Christ crucified. The about this of Hebrews 5.11 is exactly what Paul Priest to the Corinthians, Christ and Christ crucified. Same subject matter, same context. This pure and simple gospel. So again, this isn't a rebuke, but it is a warning that we should listen to. We must take Paul's words and examine ourselves. Where the shoe fits, we wear the shoe. And we trust the Spirit 
to guide us and to teach us through the word. And where the shoe doesn't fit, we are proactive in anticipating these things. We must get out in front of our immaturity, be aware of how it can happen, where it comes from. Paul says, it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. This means that the problem is not the gospel. (laughs) The problem is our ears. When we do not receive the teaching of the scripture, it is because our ears have become dull to the words of Christ. Now, to be clear, this is something that can happen to anyone, right? This happens to all of us. This is something that we all experience, the dulling of our ears to the words of Christ. This isn't something that happens to you spiritual peasants out there, and us spiritual elites up here are immune to the dulling of our ears. None of us is immune to this. And so I would identify two root causes. There are two things that can lead us down the path of having dull ears, unable to hear the words of Christ. Right? The first is spiritual pride. Remember, the gospel is simple and sufficient. But in our pride, we may add to it, uh, come up with schemes to make it more attractive, um, get into the deep philosophies that no one cares about. It's particularly easy for those of us who read a lot of the writings of men. Um, this used to be uh, something that I struggled with, but I quit reading, basically. It's not so much an issue for me anymore. Um, but it was something that I had to be careful of when I was still reading a lot of theologians. Um, You get caught up in the technical theological language and the absurd hypotheticals, the what-ifs. When we get caught up in those things, our ears can become dull to the simplicity of the gospel. Well, what if aliens came to earth? Do we have to evangelize them too? It's easy to fall into the trap of asking and investigating questions that have no bearing in reality. So here's how this trap works, okay? Some of you, I'm sure some of you will be familiar with, with what's going on here. So we start from a place with a simple and truthful and sufficient gospel, and then we wander into these hypothetical scenarios and deep philosophical questions that no biblical author ever had even on their radar when they were writing the scripture. Okay, then, because scripture doesn't even attempt to answer our questions, we have to start filling in the gaps with our own creativity. We provide our own conjectures about maybe how Paul would have answered the question. And then here's where things go horribly wrong. Okay? We let those conjectures bleed backwards into our understanding of Scripture and the gospel. Now your theology of how a missionary on the USS Enterprise ought to evangelize is determining how you relate to your neighbor. Now, that's a silly example, but... When it happens to us, it's much more subtle, much more insidious. We let these deep philosophies that are okay to think about as long as you are careful not to allow your conjecture, your creativity, the things that Scripture doesn't speak to, to bleed backwards into your understanding of Scripture. 
Now, the other root cause, right? We talked about spiritual pride. We talked about straying away from the simplicity of the gospel, away from what scripture does teach us clearly. The other root cause that I want to mention here is the forsaking of the assembly. Now, I was going to be in Ephesians 1-4, but I decided that uh, you know, James has been talking a lot about the church in our little sidebar out of First Timothy, which if ever there was a time to do a topical sidebar on the church, it's in one of the pastoral letters. Um, and so I wanted to sort of hop on the bandwagon there and talk about the church a little bit. Um, your maturity in Christ is directly correlated to your fellowship in the assembly. When we gather together under the teaching of the word, it forces us to engage with one another on the platform of the gospel. It forces us to see the simplicity of faith in our brothers and sisters. And this is, of course, the solution that Paul goes on to give at the end of Hebrews 5. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. In the assembly, every Lord's Day, we hear repeated back to us the simple, truthful, sufficient gospel. And while we engage in some of the the deeper questions of scripture, we are always reminded of the work of Christ. We are always reminded of the person of Christ. But there's an important distinction that I don't want you to miss here. I've told you that the solution to dull ears is the simple reminder of the gospel. But Paul makes a distinction here about who in particular needs this reminder. There are those who are mature in the gospel who may, for a season, become dull of hearing. The solution is then the reminder of the simplicity of the gospel. But Paul introduces another category. He speaks of those who live on milk. Obviously, the analogy Paul's working with here is of a young baby living on their mother's milk, right? This isn't a bad thing, right? Infants don't eat solid food. And there may be some among you who live off of spiritual milk. And that's okay. It's perfectly appropriate for a new believer to crave the spiritual milk of the simple and sufficient gospel. It's perfectly acceptable for a new believer to, for a time, marvel at the glory of the simplicity of the work of Christ. And to be satisfied in that. But then Paul goes on to explain when it becomes a problem. He says, some of you ought to be teachers. If you look in 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications Paul gives for the overseers of the church is that they not be a recent convert. So with these qualifications for elders and for deacons, there's an assumption here that 
you've been in the faith for a long time and that there's a reasonable expectation of maturity associated with the amount of time you've been in Christ. There's a normative understanding that time spent alive in Christ has some sort of correlation to the maturity of your faith and the depth of your knowledge of the scripture. And so Paul here in Hebrews 6 now is addressing people who have been in the faith for a while, who ought to have a reasonably mature understanding of scripture, who still live off of spiritual milk. And now... To understand the end of the analogy, we would all agree that it would be unthinkable for an adult to still drink their mother's milk. Now Paul goes on talking about food. He tells us that the solid food is for the mature. Solid food here refers to the broad testimony of Scripture. The things in Scripture that are not just the simple and sufficient gospel. Back in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, Among the mature we do impart wisdom. Though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so Paul makes this distinction between the earthly wisdom and the ancient wisdom the wisdom found in the depths of God's revelation. He says it's not a wisdom of this age. It comes from a time before time. His wisdom is eternal because it proceeds from the mouth of God and his eternal decrees. And then Paul tells us that this wisdom is made available to us through the Spirit. I'm not claiming that the Spirit imparts to us new and unique revelations. Rather, just as God has told us exactly how he saves his people through the gospel of his son, he's told us precisely the means that he has appointed for the working of the Spirit to train us up in all wisdom. So what is the source of this wisdom? The Holy Spirit himself is not properly the source of this wisdom. He sort of is, but not directly. Instead, the Holy Spirit trains us in this wisdom through the Scripture. The Holy Spirit equips and enables us to understand the Word of God. Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy 3. He says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So the word of God is the source material for the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. The wisdom is the wisdom which God decreed before the ages. What is a decree? It is a word. 
Therefore, the Holy Spirit works through the reading and the hearing of the Word of God. But this maturity cannot be had apart from the church. The maturity of your faith is the marriage of the reading and the hearing of the word and the assembly of the saints. This wisdom is given by the spirit through the word and God has established the local church as the context in which this takes place. What do we do when we gather? We sing the words of God at each other. <laughs> we listen to the word taught. We fellowship with one another around gospel conversations. We discuss what we've been studying. The seeds of maturity are planted when we study scripture alone, and then the Spirit gives the harvest when we gather together. When we gather, my study of the scripture has the opportunity to bless all of you. And your study of the scripture blesses me. So we learn and we grow together. Our own private studies of scripture are essential to the maturity of all of us. It isn't just about your spiritual health. It's about the whole body's. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. And when one of us grows, we all grow. And so these deep things of the scripture, these things that are more than just the simple gospel, the solid food for the mature, it falls upon the mature to help feed the immature. Right? In the same way that you transition a baby from milk onto solid food in steps. It's the same as we teach our brothers and sisters. Right, my daughters didn't go from drinking only milk to eating steak and fresh salmon. Because that's their favorite foods now. No, they started with having milk mixed with powdered grain. So like a wheat smoothie, basically. And then eventually, they just started stealing food off of our plates, and we knew that it was time to just start giving them real food. But we worked on that together. They learn how to eat, and they learn how to stomach real food. So in the same way, we work together to grow and mature each other. And as we do, together we are able to stomach the ancient wisdom of God with some measure of discernment. So we talked about the damage that can be done by undiscerning individuals pressing ancient wisdom upon the immature people. Paul tells us that discernment is trained by constant practice. Maturity and wisdom are things that are conditioned by constant and consistent practice. Consistent study, consistent fellowship, that's your secret to spiritual maturity. 
So Paul gives an exhortation here in Hebrews 6. Now let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and the faith toward God. So obviously, Paul's not saying that we should never teach, and review, and study the gospel, right? No, Paul's declaring that this gospel is the foundation of our relationship with God and the foundation of our relationship with one another. The gospel is the foundation of the deeper wisdom revealed in Scripture. The foundation. You don't lay a foundation for your house in one place and then go build the rest of the house somewhere else, right? When he says, let's leave this foundation, he doesn't mean let's go somewhere else. He means build on top of the foundation, right? Continue building the house on the foundation so that the house doesn't fall down. You've laid the foundation with a simple and sufficient gospel, but now there are many pieces which are built upon it. And so move on to the next steps. Move on to the deeper wisdom found in the word. And so Paul brings us back to one of our earlier points, talking about evangelism. He says that the natural person does not accept the things of God, back in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this is the issue when we talk about simplicity of our evangelism. Right? Paul tells us in Romans 3, no one does good, no one understands, no one seeks for God. The natural man cannot understand spiritual truth. There's only one solution to the blindness of man. That he be born again by the power of the Spirit. That his eyes be opened to the truth of God. It's the only remedy for this spiritual blindness, this inability to understand spiritual things. The grace and mercy of God found in our regeneration and conversion by the Spirit. And to this end, God has appointed one thing to bring about this regeneration. One thing that is the instrumental cause of our salvation. God has ordained that the faith of man in the gospel of Christ heard through the teaching of the words of Christ as the unique means of bringing about regeneration. God has promised to use the gospel, to use gospel preaching to gift gift faith to his people. This is the only remedy to spiritual blindness. Right? Isn't that what Paul says again in Romans 1? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Only God with the Spirit working through the words of Christ can cure spiritual blindness, can bring you understanding so that we see the futility of adding our own wisdom to the gospel. Nothing we can possibly add to this gospel is going to make it more effective because it's already the power of Almighty God. 
What do you think you bring to the table when the creator of the universe is already providing all the power? You bring to the table exactly the thing that he says you bring to the table, which is your mouth. You speak his gospel. And by that, his power saves his people. Over the last century or so, apologetics has become really popular. Right? I think if you follow apologetics on Amazon, you'll get an email, about an email a day about a new apologetics book. You cannot argue a lost person into salvation. They're not seeking for God. They can't understand your arguments. They cannot believe spiritual truths apart from regeneration, and God does not regenerate his people apart from his gospel. I don't mean to poo-poo the study of apologetics, right? Because Paul does demand, again, at the Areopagus, that we be prepared to give an apologia, a defense for the hope that is within us but it is not evangelism. Apologetics is not evangelism. It's not for convincing lost people of anything. Apologetics, apologetic efforts, ought to be in tension with strengthening the depth of knowledge of the people of God. So what about evangelism? Does it really matter how we evangelize? A little bit. Can't treat people poorly and act like a donkey while you evangelize. But do we need to add anything? No. If anyone tells you that your evangelism must be anything apart from simply teaching Christ and Christ crucified in love, then that person is unqualified to be teaching anyone anything. So the gospel of Christ is sufficient for your salvation and it is simple and it is understandable and it is relatable it is easy to grasp by the spirit of God there is only Christ and Christ crucified but in God's time, we go on to maturity, to learn more, to expand the breadth of our knowledge of Christ, our understanding of God. And this God will permit. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your word, we have not only the simple and sufficient teaching of Christ and Christ crucified, but beyond that, we have all of the tools that we need to go on to maturity, to have a lively faith, all the tools that we need to serve and love our church. 
And God, for this, we worship you. We thank you. And as we partake of your table, again, remind us of this simple gospel, the work of Christ. We pray these things in his name.